Chapter 3 of The Life and Adventures of Michael Armstrong, The Factory Boy. This is a LibriVox recording. Chapter 3 Introduction of Michael Armstrong into the family of Sir Matthew Dowling. Conjectures concerning his parentage. A confabulation between Sir Matthew and Mr. Joseph Parsons. When Mr. McNabb and his little companion entered the kitchen, on their way to the servants' hall, to which place of honour the wondering Scotchman remembered he had been commanded to conduct his charge, the first person they encountered was Mr. Simkins, the butler, whom some accidental wish or want had led to enter a region but rarely honoured by the sunshine of his presence. "'Good morning, McNabb. What, empty-handed? I am afraid you have forgotten the little basket of peaches I desired to have.' "'And upon my word, sir, if you leave it much longer, "'I shall not consider them worth presenting to the lady "'for whom I desired to have them. "'Be pleased to recollect, good Mr. Sawney, "'that when every garden wall is hung with ripe fruit, "'a bottle of comfort will be rather too high a price for a dozen. "'Your discourse, Mr. Simpkins, "'is neither civil nor discreet in any way,' "'replied the offended North Briton. "'My word, sir, is as good as the bank, "'either in England or Scotland.' and it is beneath a gentleman to say nothing of your rank as a butler, Mr. Simpkins, to suspect that I should forget it. Well, well, the sooner the better, that's all. But who in God's name have you got here? That is more than I am able to tell you, sir, replied McNabb. All I know about him is a mystery. Sir Matthew, and a lady that was hardly born to be so free in his company, came to the garden-house about an hour ago, and Sir Matthew was as gay as a lark and ambled and smirked while the Highlandlock's daughter, old fool, looked as well pleased as if she had been gallanted by the Duke of Argyle. Well, sir, he ordered a basket of the choicest and best for her ladyship, and it went against me, Mr. Simpkins, both ways. For first it ought to choke her, seeing who she is, and who he is, and next I thought upon my promise to you, sir. However, and nevertheless, Mr. Simpkins, I will keep my word with you, if it cost me a ton of coals more in the forcing." "'But what's all this to do with your ragged companion there? "'The child looks as if he was ready to drop. "'I'll bet a bottle you caught him thieving in the fruit garden.' "'The boy's colour rose on hearing these words. "'He spoke not, however. "'But his large eyes were turned up to the face of his companion, "'and the fingers of his little hand pressed the hard palm "'that held them almost convulsively. "'Sawney understood the appeal and answered it. "'For though, like many other gentlemen,' His code of honour at some points a little loosened and enlarged, to fit and suit his individual circumstances, he felt the value of character as much as any man, and promptly replied in good Scotch, which must, however, for sundry weighty reasons, be here translated into English. No, no, Mr. Butler, no such thing, I assure you. The lad's as honest as I am, for aught that I know to the contrary. But, to make a short story of a long one, my lady walked off up the lane, after borrowing a shawl from my wife, and your master with her, Mr. Simpkins, who but he. Well, I had picked the fruit, packed it, and delivered it over to my lady's man, and was just set down again to my seed-picking, when I heard Sir Matthew's big voice again hollowing to me, and when I came out, there stood the ill-sorted pair, arm in arm together, as before, and this ragged chap beside them. Well, and what then? ejaculated the portly butler impatiently. "'What a long-winded man you are, McNab!' "'Hoot, man!' retorted McNab. "'If you want the story, you must find patience to hear it. "'Take this boy to the servants' hall,' said Mr. Matthew quite upon the strut, "'and order supper and a bed for him.' "'To the servants' hall? 
repeated the indignant man of bottles, measuring the little fellow from head to foot with an eye, which, notwithstanding it was small and bloodshot, was eloquent of scorn. To the servants' hall. Sir Matthew will inflict his own company upon us next, I suppose. Why, look at the cotton fluff mixed with his hair. He is neither more nor less than a factory boy. To be sure he is, replied the gardener, shrugging his shoulders. But it's no fault of mine, Mr. Simpkins. To the servants' hall I must take him, right or wrong. Come along, boy. Stop one moment, if you please, MacNab. Let me step to Mrs. Thompson's room and speak one word to her about it. Sit down, sit down, will you, for one moment? And away hurried Mr. Simpkins, scattering dismay as he traversed the passages, by uttering as he passed along to footmen and housemaids, Abigail and Page, Go to the kitchen, do, in God's name. Go and see the company Sir Matthew has been ordering into the servants' hall. And away they flew, one after another, eager to see the wonder, so that by the time Mr. Simpkins himself returned to the kitchen, marshalling the housekeeper before him, at least half a dozen servants had assembled there, all of whom were gazing at little Michael, very much as if he had been caught in a forest, and conveyed thither to gratify their desire of studying natural history. "'Who is that dirty little boy, Macnab? said the magnificent Mrs. Thompson, advancing to the spot where the gardener was seated with his frightened charge standing beside him, and all the lookers-on making way for her as she passed. "'It is a factory boy sent here by Sir Matthew, Mrs. Thompson,' replied Macnab, while, forestalling it may be, the storm likely to follow the intelligence, he seemed to settle himself in the armchair either to enjoy the fun or abide the tempest. But he was, as it should seem, mistaken as to Mrs. Thompson's feelings. For that lady, though usually considered by the subordinates as somewhat warm in temper, appeared on this occasion to be mild as a lamb. "'A factory boy, certainly,' she replied with a dignity that was peculiar to her. "'Nobody is likely to doubt that, Mr. Macnab. One might know his calling at half a mile's distance. The vulgar factory itself, with its millions of windows, is not more easily known than the things that crawl out of it, with their millions of cotton specks.' That is not the main point of the question, Mr. Macnab. It is not what the boy is, but who he is, and for what reason anyone has dared to say that he was to sup in the servants' hall. Oh, dear me, ma'am, replied the gardener, endeavouring to look very grave. That wasn't one half of it. To you, ma'am, it's my duty to repeat Sir Matthew's words exact, and this is what he said. Macnab, or Mr. Macnab, for he calls me both at times, Take this little boy, says he, into the servants' hall, and tell everybody there to take care of him. Everybody to take care of him. That was it, Mrs. Thompson, word for word. And then he went on. He is to have a bed, says he, made up on purpose for him, and he is to be waited upon with supper and breakfast, and a great deal more, that Mr. Parsons is to make known to-morrow. But you have not heard all yet, ma'am continued Macnab, raising his voice on perceiving that the stately housekeeper was putting herself in act to speak. Sir Matthew went on, raising his arm like one of his own steam engines. Observe, Mr. Macnab, says he, and take care that all the servants, little and great, know it, that this boy is to be the object of the greatest benevolence. That's something new for you, Mrs. Thompson, isn't it? Sir Matthew may settle about his benevolence with himself, when he is in his own pew at church, "'replied Mrs. Thompson with a very satirical sort of smile. "'But most certain they shall not be brought to dirty my premises. "'So let me hear no more about it, gardener, if you please.' 
and with these words she turned haughtily away. But, ma'am, Mrs. Thompson, you had better stop if you please, for go I must, if that's your answer, and tell Sir Matthew of it. If Mr. McNabb had been a blacksmith instead of a gardener, he might have been less surprised at the phenomena which followed these words. For he would have known that white heat is stronger than red heat, though it does not look so fierce. He had fancied the housekeeper particularly calm and placable upon this occasion, because, forsooth, she looked rather pale than red when she entered the kitchen. But no sooner had he uttered this threat of reporting her words to Sir Matthew, than the fact of her being in an exceedingly terrible rage became evident. Notwithstanding the usual dignified gentility of her manner, on which, indeed, when more self-possessed she greatly prided herself, she clenched her fists, raised her arms on high, and from one of the most imposing housekeepers in the British dominions, suddenly assumed the aspect of an inspired fury. Tell, you, Sir Matthew, blackguard, scoundrel, base-born spinning spider, I, that have lived with the Duke of Clarington. Tis too, too bad, and that's the fact, exclaimed my Lady Dowling's own footman, who always sided with the principal person in company, which gave him very much the air of being a superior person himself. And if I was Mrs. Thompson, I'd throw my salary in the vulgar fellow's face, before I'd bear to have a factory boy pushed into my company. And so I will, Mr. Jennings, you may depend upon it, replied the incensed Prime Ministress, somewhat softened. So now, Mr. McNabb, you may just take yourself off, and leave the brat in the kitchen, or take him away with you as you like best. I have done my share of the benevolent job, so I will wish you good night, Mrs. Thompson. And whether this little fellow eats his supper and breakfast in the kitchen or the hall, it will be much the same to him, I fancy. So saying, the gardener rose, and giving a sort of general nod to the company, left the kitchen. Considering that there had been nothing very affectionate in the nature of the intercourse which had taken place between them, it was rather singular that the little Michael should feel as sorry as he did at the departure of Mr. McNabb. But he did feel sorry, and when the door shut after him he turned away, and hid his face with his uplifted arm. Pride of place and elevation of character having been in a considerable degree satisfied by Mrs. Thompson's energetic expression of her feelings, Something like curiosity awoke within her to learn what the circumstances had been which had induced Sir Matthew Dowling to declare an intention of acting benevolently. For a moment she struggled against it, and again seemed about to leave the room. But as she turned her eyes upon the child, she seemed to feel that before one so very abject, no loss of importance could be feared, even if she did question him. So, with the air of a judge walking up to the bench, she stalked onwards to the seat Mr. McNabb had left, and placing her austere person in it, made a signal with her hand, that the kitchen-maid who had ventured to approach the little boy should stand back and leave her space to examine him. On one side of this space stood the lordly butler, with his arms folded, and a look of scorn upon his countenance that seemed to question the propriety of the measure Mrs. Thompson had thought proper to adopt. On the other was the courtly Jennings, with an arm resting upon her chair, as if to give evidence that he was near at hand to support her. An extremely fat and very professional-looking cook came next, while my lady's own maid, with all the elegant superiority of attire which marks the station, held a scented bottle to her nose that the curiosity which led her to be a witness of this extraordinary scene might be punished with as little suffering as possible. Two sprightly housemaids seemed to find something vastly amusing in the whole business, 
though their evident merriment was restrained by the solemnity of Mrs. Thompson's manner. "'Look up in my face, little boy,' said the housekeeper, as soon as she had seated herself and saw that those around her stood still, as if they had taken their places and were prepared to listen. Michael did not move. He was probably ashamed to show that he was weeping before the face of a lady who spoke so very grandly. The kitchen-maid gave him a nudge, but a gentle one, whispering at the same time, "'Look up, my boy. What you be feared of? There's nobody as wants to hurt you here.' Thus encouraged, Michael let his arm drop by his side and discovered a face that was indeed sallow and by no means very plump, but with features and expression which, whatever Sir Matthew Dowling's men and maids might think of it, might have sufficed to make the fortune of an able painter. "'Whose child are you?' demanded the housekeeper. "'Mother's.' replied the boy. "'I suspected as much,' rejoined the inquisitor, half aside to Mr. Jennings. "'And I be not no way surprised to hear it, I promise you,' he replied. Mrs. Thompson sighed deeply. "'It is dreadful,' said she. Then, after taking a moment to recover herself, she resumed. "'And where does the unhappy person live?' "'Please, ma'am, who?' said the puzzled boy. "'The—your mother-child.' "'Shame upon you for forcing me to name her.' Michael gave a little shake of the head, which seemed to the merciful kitchen-maid to say that he did not know what the great lady meant. But he presently replied, as if discreetly determined to mind only what he did understand, "'Mother lives in Hoxley Lane, ma'am.' "'The most deplorable situation in the whole parish, inhabited only by the very lowest,' observed the housekeeper with another indignant sigh. "'So much the worse for she,' muttered the kitchen-maid but not loud enough to be heard by her in whose hands rested the appointment of kitchen-maids as well as cooks. "'And why does such as you come here?' resumed the housekeeper. "'Because the squire ordered t'other man to bring me,' answered Michael. "'I suspect that the boy is a natural fool,' observed Mrs. Thompson, addressing the butler. "'It is a sure fact and a great dispensation. Bad parents have almost always children out of shape, both mind and body.' You may take my word for that, all of you, she added, looking round her, and you will do well to teach it to your children after you. I'll be burnt if I don't think it very likely that it was his own father sent him here and no one else, said Mr. Jennings, chuckling. Fie, Jennings, fie, returned Mrs. Thompson with a frown. God in heaven only knows what may have been the cause of it. Not but what it does look strange, there's no denying that. Do you know anything about your father, child? said Mr. Simpkins in a magisterial tone. "'Father's in heaven,' replied the child. "'Mercy on me, do you hear him? "'Is not that like mocking the Lord's prayer?' exclaimed the lady's maid. "'No, it is not,' said Michael, while a flash of youthful indignation rushed into his face. "'My father is in heaven along with God.' "'I dare say he means that his father is dead,' observed the butler with an air of great sagacity. And if what has been jealous at is correct, he added, winking his eye at Mr. Jennings, it is very natural that he should have been told to say so. That's very true, said the housekeeper, and it may be, certainly, that the child knows nothing about it whatever, either one way or t'other. Indeed, I think it's a good deal the most likely that he does not. But, anyhow, it's a very shocking business, and as far as I am concerned, I'll neither make nor meddle in the matter." Of course, the men's servants may do just as they like about taking notice of him, for here he is, and here he will bide, I dare say. But I recommend the maids to follow my example, and not to injure their characters, 
nor to corrupt their morals by having anything to do with the offspring of. It is more decent not to finish what I was going to say for your goods, young women, and lucky it is that there is no need. You must all understand me without it. Mrs. Thompson then rose from her chair and turning her eyes, and indeed her head, aside to prevent herself from again seeing Michael, she walked with a degree of stateliness and majesty that few housekeepers ever attained through the kitchen, along the passage, across the servants' hall, into the sacred shelter of her own parlour, where she gave way to emotions which rendered a glass of prime London Madeira absolutely necessary. Meanwhile, Michael remained in no very happy condition in the kitchen. He was very tired, very sleepy, very thirsty, very much longing to see his mother and brother, and very greatly puzzled as to himself. But though accounted to be a brave little fellow for his age, he could not muster courage enough to ask any questions of those around him, and if he had, it would have been to no avail. For the very moment Mrs. Thompson was out of sight, so many of the servants began talking together that no sounds his voice could produce would have been heard. Jokes and jibes about Sir Matthew, mingled with ridiculous anecdotes, and very cordial abuse of him and all his race, furnished the first subject and filled the first chorus. Then followed some facetious observations from Mr. Jennings concerning Mrs. Thompson and a few of her peculiarities. And it was in the midst of the giggling which these occasioned that the kitchen maid ventured to say, Well now, you are all so keen and so clever about her, that I wonder it don't come into your heads to find out that she spoke just like an old fool and no better when she invented all that rigmarole about the boy. Master might just be the devil you says he is, and ten times worser too for anything I know about him. But the worser he is, the farther I'd be, if I was such a mighty good gentlewoman as she thinks herself, from giving such a bad father out of my own invention to anybody, whether they come out of the factory or not. I do think Molly's right, said one of the housemaids. What business has the old frump to find a father for him? Nobody asked her. That may be all very true, Rebecca, observed the lady's maid, shaking her head very gravely. I know well enough that Mrs. Thompson does not always wait for right and reason before she speaks, but that makes no difference as to our having any familiarity with this dirty little boy, for it certainly does appear plain enough that his mother is very little better than she ought to be. Lord bless us, and how much better be you than you ought to be, I should like to know, said the fat cook, who had her own reasons for not being at all partial to Mrs. Whittington, her ladyship's waiting-maid. I... You miserable lump of kitchen stuff that no man in his senses would ever deign to look upon twice. Do you dare to say that I am no better than I ought to be? Now the cook was an Irish woman, and though she had famous black eyes and teeth like an elephant, her principal claim to the coveted attentions of the other sex, setting aside the attractions which it is but fair to presume her profession gave her, arose from the ready sauciness of her tongue, which in a brogue as strong as that of the Scotch gardener, and equally dangerous for the untaught to meddle with, was wont to rattle about her right and left, sometimes scolding, but oftener making sport of all who crossed her humour. Now this virtuous outbreak of Mrs. Whittington was too fair an opportunity to be lost, and, accordingly, putting on as demure a look as her wicked eyes would let her, she replied, "'You be better than you ought to be, be you? Well, now, that's a trouble for your conscience, isn't it? Is there anybody as can help her out of it?' Think what it is, gentlemen, to be so burdened, and she, poor soul, unable to confess to a priest, seeing she's a heretic. Oh, she's better than she ought to be, 
and you've her own word for it too, and that's the reason you see why she's obliged, whether she will or no, to turn her back on this poor little fellow, just because he's fatherless. Isn't that a sore strait for a young lady's conscience? Praise and glory to the Holy Virgin and all the company of saints, now and for evermore, that I beant one bit better than I ought to be, and I hope you beant neither, Molly. And so, just run to the larder, will you, girl, and bring out something for supper fit for a hungry little boy, that I haven't the misfortune to be so burdened in mine as pretty Mrs. Whittington. Oh, the poor soul! She's better than she ought to be. Molly, the kitchen-maid, did not wait for a second order, and if a capital dish of cold cutlets could have set little Michael's heart at rest, he might then have been a very happy fellow. But in truth, he was longing for his own porridge by his own mother's bedside, and except from the relief afforded by a copious draught of milk, he went to the bed prepared for him by his friend the kitchen-maid, so little elated in spirit, and so little thankful for the extraordinary change which had befallen him, that, had his noble patroness been made aware of it, she would, beyond all doubt, have punished his ingratitude by requesting Sir Matthew to turn him out of doors again. And, moreover, have for ever abandoned the generous idea of surrounding his young head, as she poetically expressed it, with the halo of immortality by means of getting Mr. Osmond Norval to relate his adventure in verse. Sir Matthew Dowling went to his bed also, hardly better pleased with what had occurred than little Michael. But there was this difference between them. Little Michael said his prayers, which the great Sir Matthew did not. But, on the contrary, spent his last waking moment in cursing, with great fervor of spirit, the folly of the hideous old maid who had entailed such a detestable burden upon him the result of which, as a peace-offering to the whole body of operatives, was at any rate but problematical. Nevertheless, when he awoke the next morning with his head quite cool, he felt disposed to think more of the hint given him by his friend and favoured Dr. Crockley, and less of the inconvenience of having a few pounds to pay out of hundreds of thousands for a job, which, if well managed, might help, perhaps, to avert a monstrous deal of mischief. With these rational thoughts working strongly in his ever-active brain, he rang his bell, and ordered that Joseph Parsons, his principal overlooker, should be sent for instantly and shown into his study. A short half-hour brought the master and man to a tete-a-tete in the snug little apartment described in the first chapter. "'Good morning, Parsons,' said Sir Matthew. The overlooker bowed his head respectfully. "'Have you heard anything of this meeting at the Weaver's Arms, Parsons?' inquired Sir Matthew. "'As much as a man was likely to hear, Sir Matthew, who, as you will easily believe, was not intended to hear anything,' replied the confidential servant. "'And how much was that, Parsons? Sit down, Parsons. Sit down, and let us hear all about it.' "'I was a-coming, sir, if you hadn't a-sent for me,' rejoined the overlooker. "'For, to say truth, my mind misgives me that there's mischief brewing.' "'I have heard as much,' said the master. "'But it can hardly have gone very far yet.' if such a sharp-sighted fellow as you only suspect. That's true, sir, said the man with a grim smile in acknowledgment of the compliment. And I've not been idle, I promise you. But all I know for certain is that the people, old and young, our own people, I mean, have, one and all, taken dudgeon about that girl Stevens that died the week before last, just after leaving the mill. She had been at work all day in the spinning mill, and who was to guess that she was that low? It was a d-blank stupid thing, though, Parsons, to have a girl go on working and not know whether she was dying or not. And how is one to know, sir? I'll defy any man to find out what with their tricks and what with their real faintings. 
You won't tell me, Parsons, that if you set your wits to work, you can't tell whether they are shamming or not. That's not the question, Sir Matthew, asking your pardon. There's no great difficulty in finding out whether they are in a real faint, or only making the most of being a little sickish from standing and want of air. That's not the difficulty. The thing is to know, when they really take to the downright faintings, whether they are likely to live through it or not. And where is the great difficulty of that? You know Dr. Crockley would come at a moment's warning at any time and feel their pulses. And he does do it, sir. But in the first place, I doubt if any man can justly tell whether girls are likely to go on fainting and up again, as lots and lots of them do for years, or drop down and die, as Nancy Stevens did. That's one thing. And another is that Dr. Crockley is so fond of a joke that tis rarely one knows when he speaks earnest and when he does not. He did see Nancy Stevens about a month ago, and all he said was, she do look a little pale in the gills, to be sure, but a dance would cure her, I have no doubt. A dance, says I, doctor. And please to tell me, says I, how the work is to get on if the factory boys and girls sets off dancing. Maybe you haven't got a fiddle, said he. Maybe I haven't, said I. Well then, says he, if it don't suit you to let them dance to the fiddle, I'll bet ten to one you'll be after making him dance to the strap. And with that, if you'll believe me, sir, he set off capering and making antics, just as if there had been somebody behind as trapping him. To be sure, it was fit to make one die of laughing to see him. But that's not the way you know, sir, to do one any good as to finding out the real condition of the people. Sir Matthew could not resist a hearty laugh at this characteristic trait of his friend but he concluded by acknowledging that Parsons was quite right in saying that this way of doing business was more agreeable than useful. However, Parsons, he continued, we must not talk about that now, for I have something else to say to you. It is quite plain that they are getting again to their grumblings. And Crockley, who you know is up to everything, says that he'll bet his life that they have got some new mischief in their cursed heads. Now this must be prevented, Parsons, some way or other for any harm they can do to the machinery is not the worst of it. Tis the rousing up people's attention again, Parsons. There's the danger. Just see what they've done about the Blackmore slaves by going on boring for everlasting, ding-dong, ding-dong, till they actually got the thing done at last. Now the Philadelphia people and the Boston people are just playing the very same game t'other side the water. And when they have got their way, where will their national wealth be, I should like to know? And where will our national wealth be when these rascals have contrived to stop the mills instead of working them? Lord have mercy upon us, Sir Matthew. If you don't make me creep all over to hear you, exclaimed Parsons. Tis a pity, sir, and often the times I have said it, that you aren't in Parliament yourself. You'd pretty soon show em what their meddling with factories would do for the country. Tis likely I might, Parsons. But a man can't be in two places at once. And depend upon it, there's good to be done here, if we knew how to set about it. I shall make you stare, perhaps, Mr. Parsons, when I tell you what I am about now. It came into my head by accident at first. But if I don't greatly mistake, I'll make a capital thing of it before I have done. There's no doubt of that, Sir Matthew. If you set your mind to it, let it be what it will, replied the confidential overlooker. And if it isn't a secret, sir... I should like uncommon much to hear it. No, it's no secret, Parsons. Anything in the world but that, replied Sir Matthew, laughing. 
what should you say now, Mr. Superintendent, to my taking a dirty little dog of a piecer out of the factory into my own house, and dressing him, and feeding him, and lodging him, all for the love of pure benevolence and little boys? I don't quite understand you, sir, replied Mr. Joseph Parsons, looking very grave. No, I dare say you don't. But I think I do, Parsons, and that's more to the purpose. Trust me, man, it will do good if it's early by giving the people something to talk of just now, besides this confounded girl's death. And now, my good fellow, tell me all you know of a boy called Michael Armstrong, for he, you must understand, is the hero of my tale. That's the boy, is it? Then that's why the chap didn't come to work this morning, replied Mr. Parsons. I knows him well enough, Sir Matthew, in course, for he's going on for eight or nine, and he come to the factory just about five. And what sort of a boy is he, Parsons? Nothing very particular, Sir Matthew, unless it is because of the unaccountable fuss he makes about his elder brother, who is but a poor, rickety, shriveledy sort of a child. For some reason or other, his bones never seem to come rightly straight, and this Mike makes as great a fuss about him as if he was his grandmother. "'Are the parents living?' inquired Sir Matthew. "'The mother is. "'She is a bedridden woman, and ought to be in the workhouse. "'But she's uppish, and can't abide it, "'and so she lies abed doing plain work in that, "'and the two boys' wages maintains them. "'But I did hear t'other day she had given in, "'and was a-begging to go into the house "'and take the eldest boy with her. "'These creatures never know what they would be at. "'I suspect, howsomever, that she has got hold of a notion.' "'that because he's so cripply, he be in to work no more. "'But I shall take care to see Butchel, the parish overseer, about it. "'It is altogether a trick that, what won't answer, "'his fingers is just as able to handle the reels "'and piece the threads as ever they was. "'And, in course, a little dwarf like him, "'with his legs like crooked drumsticks, "'can't look for any but the youngest wages. "'So, after all, he's one of them as answers best.' "'No, Parsons, no!' ejaculated Sir Matthew with sudden energy. That woman must not go into the workhouse. The whole thing shall be got up, I tell you, in the best possible style. What do you say now to getting the woman arrested for debt? Or having all her things sold? And we just stepping in at the very nick of time to save her from destruction. There was something so truly comic in the expression of the knight's countenance as he said this, that even the saturnine Mr. Parsons could not help laughing. "'If the born devils don't sing your praises through the country, sir,' said he, as soon as he had recovered his gravity, "'why, we must find some other way to go to work with them. "'Now then, be off, Parsons, and contrive some clever scheme or other to throw the unhappy family into a quandary.' "'I understand, sir,' said Parsons, nodding his head, and so parted the master and the man.' End of chapter 3